podcast. If you're wondering what happens in Acts chapter 29 and following, just look around. We live it every day. Teaching team member Caleb Click finishes the series Radical Renewal with this sermon entitled To the End of the Earth, which covers Acts chapter 28, verses 17 to 31. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Our scripture reading today is Acts 28, 17 through 31. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, Yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, And none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart, in turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God, and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty, gracious Father, Since our whole salvation depends on our true understanding of your holy word, grant us all that our hearts, freed from worldly affairs, may hear and understand your holy word with all diligence and faith, so that we may rightly discern your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all earnestness to your praise and honor through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, we ask now, would you come? Would you meet with us through your spirit as we go through your word? And would you show us, as only you can, the beauty and the glory of your son in a way that shatters our hearts and then gloriously remakes them? Would you do this now in his precious name? Amen. My first two years of high school in Texas, uh, I was a part of a magnet program, which basically just meant I was surrounded by a bunch of kids who were way smarter than me. And if you're in high school, you know, the one thing you want more than anything else is you want to fit in. You want to be cool. And with these kids, uh, that meant reading books that were way over my head because that's all they talked about. 
Uh, they were reading stuff that I didn't understand, but I wanted to pretend that I did because that was going to be what made me cool. And so I went down some really strange rabbit holes for a freshman in high school. And one of those was with an author named Franz Kafka. Now, if you don't know Kafka, he, he's a guy who focuses, all of his work is about feelings of alienation and the absurd and the meaninglessness of life. His most famous story is a book, a little book called Metamorphosis that's all about a guy who wakes up one day and discovers he's turned into a bug. And then frets because he can't go to work because he's a bug and take care of his family. That's the story. But that, that wasn't how I got introduced to Kafka. Because the books that my friends were reading, it wasn't that short story, it was his novels. And here's what they didn't tell me. And what, in an age before the internet was pervasive, I didn't know how to find out. Kafka never finished those novels. And so I would start reading and I would discover that I was in a book that had a beginning and an end, but it didn't have a middle. I'd read another book and there would be a beginning and a middle and then just an ellipsis where there should have been final chapters. There would be these moments of brilliance and then this sense of incompleteness. The book would just end. And there's a sense in which the book of Acts feels a little bit like that. Over the past four years, we have been walking through these 28 chapters of Acts, and we have seen the gospel spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, and now to the city of Rome, all in fulfillment of God's promise in Acts 1-8 that his disciples, they would be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. We've seen that gospel go out. We've seen a new community birthed, a community that's marked by radical love and gospel proclamation. It's a, a community that endures threats of every kind. They've been persecuted, they've been beaten, they've even been killed, and yet the grace of God has preserved them through every single bit of it. And over the last half of the book, we've been introduced by Luke to this man named Paul. We've been told his conversion story three different times. We've been told about his call to ministry. We've heard about his missionary journeys. We've seen him weather shipwrecks and storms and beatings and even, as Jimmy reminded us last week, snakes. All with one end in mind, to get to the city of Rome and to stand before Caesar and to proclaim the good news of the Savior that he so loves. And so you would expect 28 chapters in, after all of that, that when you get here to these final moments, you would arrive at some grand finale, something fantastic, something extraordinary, Paul standing in front of Nero, the most powerful man in the world, and saying, Christ is Lord and you're not. But that's not what happens, is it? Instead of something extraordinary, we get to the end of Acts, and we find Paul doing something profoundly ordinary. He's doing exactly the same thing he's done in every other city. Proclaiming the gospel first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And the question, the question that has to be in our minds is why? There's no word on whether he ever gets to sit with Caesar and declare that Christ is Lord and he's not. There's no news on whether he lives or dies or if he ever gets out of prison, if this is Paul's end or if there are still years to go. We can pick 
some of those things out from other sources, but Acts doesn't tell us. And stranger still, in a book that has been following Acts 1-8 and using it as a structure, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the gospel hasn't yet gone to the ends of the earth, has it? And yet the book, the book just ends. It just stops. And if we believe that this book doesn't just have a human author, but also a divine one, then the question we have to ask is why did God stop the story here? And I think this is the answer. The sense of incompleteness is the point. Because this book, this book was never really about Paul. It was never really about the church. It was about one thing and one thing only. The presence of God in the world to save, the arrival of a kingdom that has come and will one day come in full and now spreads as God's people through the power of the Spirit proclaim it to the ends of the earth. And while this book is finished, that mission is not. God isn't done. And if biblical narratives, as they so often do, are intended to provoke a response, they might not have a command, but they're always intended to draw something out from us, then that means something significant. This isn't just an ending, it's an invitation. The God who has worked so powerfully in Acts he is calling not just to the church in that day, he is calling to the church today and inviting us to enter into that same story. To see ourselves as people captured by the same grace, seized by the same Savior, empowered by the same Spirit, and to join with God in his mission from Acts 1-8 to take this gospel to the ends of the earth. And if that's the invitation, then we can't just look at this immediate text to understand what empowers it. We have to look back at the entirety of the book of Acts, and when we do, what do we see? A people joyously joining with God in his mission because they've been overwhelmed by the beauty of God's sovereignty, God's spirit, and God's son. First, God's sovereignty. Why is the church in the book of Acts so supremely confident that God is with them. I mean, if you look at this church, they don't seem on the surface with human eyes to have a whole lot going for them. I mean, if you've read the Gospels, you know what kind of people these are. They're not the sharpest tools in the shed. They're not the wisest. They're not the most powerful. They're not the most socially connected. There's tax collectors and fishermen, doctors, it's a hodgepodge, strange group of people, and the church, especially at the beginning of Acts, they are this tiny little group of people that at every moment seems as though they are in danger of being snuffed out, and yet what do you see? 28 chapters through the book of Acts. That church that seems as though it is always in danger, as though it is this matchstick, this tiny flame in a world that's full of a tornado wind, it never, ever goes out. And the church, 
Despite opposition on every side, the church just keeps moving forward. And why is it? It's not because they're confident in themselves. It's because they are confident in the one who holds them in his hand. The God who created them and who now redeems them, the one who as they pray in Acts 4 is the sovereign Lord against whom the nations rage and rage in vain. A God who so sovereignly superintends every moment that even those things that look like kingdom defeats in the end prove to actually be kingdom victories. And how do they know this? Because they have stared into the face of the resurrected Jesus, which means the cross, that place on Calvary that looked like Christ's defeat, that was actually Christ's victory. And in God's sovereign grace, man's greatest sin proved to be God's greatest mercy. It, it's the theme of most of the early sermons in the book of Acts, that they start preaching and you hear this, this drumbeat over and over and over again. God sent his son into the world and we killed him. We killed the author of life. We crucified the righteous one. But God's presence in the world in Christ, his presence on that cross, it was no accident. We killed him and that was our sin, but he was on that cross because God offered him up for our sake and for our salvation and God didn't just offer him up to die, God raised him. And all of this, as Acts 2.23 says, was according to his definite plan and foreknowledge. What God, man meant for evil, God meant for good, and the very thing that would seem as though it would hinder the coming of the kingdom, it's actually the means through which God ushers it in. And as those who are in Christ, that upside-down reality of the cross, that becomes our reality too. Death leads to life, suffering leads to glory, and the things that look like kingdom obstacles prove to be kingdom opportunities. And you see it everywhere in Acts. God is so orchestrating every moment that even in the moment when the threat seems greatest, the kingdom continues to move forward. When the enemies of Christ attack the church in Jerusalem, they're thinking if we scatter them to the winds, we'll stop the spread of the gospel. We will kill this little community before it even has time to dig roots. And what do they end up doing? They scatter the church, and what do they scatter with it? The gospel. It goes out from Jerusalem to Judea and to Samaria. God moves forward. When Herod tries to destroy the church, and he kills James, and then he arrests Peter, He's thinking that he can nip this thing in the bud, and then what happens? God opens up the jail doors, and Peter walks out. And Herod? Herod dies. Because God, God doesn't like being mocked. And what happens to the word that he tried to snuff out? It goes out more powerfully still. Over the last few chapters, as we followed Paul on his journeys, we, we, we've seen him endure hell and high water. He's been shipwrecked, he's been beaten, he's been bitten by snakes, he's had people take vows that they're not gonna eat until they kill him. I mean, everything is coming up against him, and yet what in the end do we know here in Acts 28? All of it is served to do one thing, 
to fulfill the promise God made to him in Acts 23, that Paul would get to the city of Rome and he would stand before Caesar and he would proclaim the gospel. God kept going. And you see it here yet again in the final verses of Acts. Paul is sitting there in prison. There's yet another obstacle and what has happened to Paul's prison? It has become his pulpit. His prison has become the means through which the gospel is being shared. As Paul says in Philippians 1.12, even jail just served to advance the cause of the gospel. God couldn't be stopped. You know, we sometimes think that the sovereignty of God is this thing that suffocates evangelism. Acts, Acts says, no, the sovereignty of God is actually what inflames evangelism. And this, this is a reality that I think at this moment we need probably almost more than anything else. You know, we live in this cultural moment where it doesn't matter who you are, it is staring you in the face. The world that we inhabit is one that is changing and changing rapidly. I mean, even 30 years ago, the things that we assumed, those are not things we are necessarily assuming anymore, are we? Christian or non-Christian? The way we experience the world, the way we interpret the world, all of it seems to be changing, and sometimes at a breakneck pace. An author that I was recently reading, he used the illustration of John Lennon's song, Imagine. And if you don't know that song, it has this one famous line, imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try. And what the author said was this, he goes, if you sang that line to someone 200, 300, 400 years ago, they would say to you, well, I can imagine there's no heaven, but it's not easy. Because you lived in a world that seemed suffused with the presence of the divine. And everything around you reinforced that the supernatural was real, that there was some kind of divine. You might fight about doctrine, you might fight about which God it was, you might fight about how you were gonna follow him, but you were probably not fighting about whether or not he existed. Belief was easy, unbelief was hard. But today, it's the reverse. Unbelief has become what is easy and belief what is hard. It's easy if you try. And you see it even in the way we talk about faith. We talk about faith as something we can lose. That's new. And everywhere you turn, You'll hear articles and people speaking, pontificating, wringing their hands about what in the world is going to happen. What is going to happen to the church? What is going to happen to the Christian faith? And the book of Acts looks at all that hand-wringing and says, I'll tell you exactly what's going to happen. Christ's kingdom is going to come. And God's will is going to be done. Because the same God who raised Christ from the dead the same God who ruled over the world in Acts, that is the God who rules now. And that is the God who holds his church in his hands. And if that's the case, then who knows what perceived prisons may in the end prove to be the pulpits that God intends us to fill. Sovereignty, sovereignty doesn't snuff out evangelism. It inflames it. 
But that's not the only thing driving God's mission. It's God's spirit. You know, if you've got a sailboat, a sailboat doesn't do you any good if there's no wind. You know, in my head, I can't get rid of the image of Chris Farley and Tommy Boy sitting out on a boat in the middle of a lake. He's on the sailboat. There's these kids on the shore making fun of him, and he is railing at the heavens because they're mocking him, and he can't get to them because there's no wind. He can't get the boat to move. All he can do is yell. And sometimes I I think we feel like that's how God has sent us out into the world. He's given us the ship and a sail, but no wind. He's dropped us in the lake and said, go do this thing, but do it on your own. That's not what Acts is saying, is it? When Jesus says to his disciples, you will be my witnesses, notice that's not a command. Jesus is saying, no, no, that's what's going to happen. And why is it going to happen? Because you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. When you turn to Acts 2, and the Holy Spirit has fallen on the church, and Peter begins to preach his Pentecost sermon, what's the theme? It's that Christ, the resurrected Christ, he has ascended to heaven, not to leave us as orphans, but rather as the promised Messiah to fulfill God's promise and to pour out his spirit on the church, clothing them with power, transforming them into his image, and empowering them for his mission. God is giving his church all the wind that they could possibly need. And you see this reality playing out everywhere in the life of the church. In Acts 2, when Peter preaches that sermon, what's the result? Thousands of people convert. Thousands are baptized. Thousands receive the Spirit. And this new community is birthed. A community that is verses 42 to 47 remind us that was devoted to the word and to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread and of prayers, to fellowship. A community that is marked by sacrificial love and whose hearts have been so transformed that that thing that enslaves so many of us, the love of money, It enslaves them no more because when they see needs, they are selling their own property to provide for those who have nothing. And as the book moves on, you see that radical generosity matched with radical welcome because it's not just the Jews who are welcomed into this family. It's the Gentiles too. It is people from every walk of life, even those who seem to be on the lowest rung, and yet all are welcomed into the family of God as children of the King. I've been reading recently this book about the history of the the 18th century English abolitionist movement, and it's a movement that is honestly just an incredible work of God when you study it. And there's people we've heard about with this movement. John Newton, William Wilberforce, those are names that if you just read the history books, you've at least had your eyes glaze over them. But most of history has forgotten the man who was actually the driving force behind that movement. It was this young pastor in training named Thomas Clarkson. And in a time in history where there were more slaves in the world than there were free people, when it was such a given, this idea that slavery was something that was just a part of this world, that the Church of England literally owned plantations full of slaves in the West Indies. That's how accepted it was. 
This young man on a horseback ride one day fell under this extreme sense of conviction that this thing that even the church he served said was okay, this thing was evil and it needed to be destroyed. And it so transformed his life that his others and contemporaries in his days said he became the slave of slaves. He sacrificed everything his social status, his wealth, his physical well-being, all of it he laid down because he wanted to see others set free and this community of people begin to gather around him, believers and Quakers, all of them consumed with this one end to see the slave trade ended. And in this book, the writer, a guy that's not a Christian, he writes this. He says, what they sparked was something never seen before. It was the first time a large number of people became outraged and stayed outraged for many years over someone else's rights. And most startlingly of all, the rights of people of another color on another continent. What happened? The writer of that book, he has no idea. The book of Acts the book of Acts says, I'll tell you what happened. The Holy Spirit did. Taking hard hearts and transforming them into repentant ones. And forming God's people into God's image. And that spirit that transforms, that spirit also all through Acts empowers the church when they're filled with the Spirit, what is always the result in the book of Acts? They speak boldly, even in the face of persecution. And what happens? Everywhere they turn, in ways large and small, people are coming to know Christ. Even in these final verses, you see it happening. What's Paul doing in the last two verses of Acts 28? The man who before Jesus would not have looked at a Gentile as he passed him on the street, he's welcoming them into his home. And he's doing so at financial cost to himself so that he can proclaim the good news of the one who loved him and gave himself for him. And while the text doesn't say it, the whole book screams it. What's happened? The Spirit has. Transforming Paul and empowering him for the work at hand. You know, I, I sit there sometimes and I wonder, why is it so hard for me to sacrifice for the sake of others? Why is it so hard for me to open up my mouth even in the presence of people that I love and that I know love me. And I wonder sometimes if the reason is this. I have lost sight of the precious gift that Christ died to procure and even now pours out on his church, the Spirit. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and your heart cries, Abba, Father, then here's what the gospel says to you. The same spirit that Christ poured out on his church in Acts chapter two and all through the book of Acts, that same spirit has been poured out on you. 
which means your sails have all the wind they could possibly need. The questions are these. Are we listening to God's Spirit? Are we submitting to His Spirit as He preaches to us from the Word? Are we trusting Him to do in us what we cannot do ourselves? That's what drives the mission of the church. God's sovereignty, God's Spirit, but also one thing more, God's Son. You don't have to be a master exegete to recognize the one thing that Paul just won't shut up about in these last verses. Verse 20, the hope of Israel, that's Jesus. Verse 23, he's morning and evening, all through the day, expounding the scriptures. Why? To convince them about Jesus. Verse 28, he's talking about the salvation of God. Well, who's that? That's Jesus. Verses 30 and 31, he's talking again about Christ and his kingdom. Well, what's that all about? It's Jesus. The anthem of Paul's heart, the, the theme, the drumbeat of every word, it's Christ over and over and over again. It's all he'll talk about. And the question is why? Why won't he shut up? It, from, outside, from the outside looking in, it hasn't helped him. He's in chains. He's in prison. He could die. Why will Paul not stop talking I think it's for the same reason I won't stop talking about the Georgia Bulldogs. <laughs> it's not because Kirby Smart sneaks into my room and yells at me that I have to do it. Though he might do that, I don't know. I don't, some of you guys may know that. It's not duty, it's not drudgery, it's because I enjoy it. It gives my heart delight. I love it, for good or for ill, mostly for ill. That's what's happened to Paul. He has seen in the face of Jesus something that has so transformed his view of the world that all the things he would have previously said, this is gain and this is good. Paul says, if it means losing Jesus, I'd rather lose it all. Take the money, take my life, take my freedom, but give me Christ. Why is he willing to be rejected for the sake of Christ? Because on the Damascus road, he stared into the face of the one whose name he hated so much, he was killing his people. And he saw not the face of judgment, but the face of love. One who was willing to endure not just Paul's rejection, but even the rejection of his heavenly father. So that Paul and people like us could know the Father's embrace? Why is he willing to be bound for the sake of the gospel? Because he looks at Jesus and he sees one who is willing not only to be bound, but even to die for him when he was at his very worst. Why does he not shake at the prospect of death? Because he's seen the face of the resurrected Jesus and in that face seen a hope that death can't shake. And here, here's what I think has transfixed his heart. It's the recognition of who that Jesus came to save. It's the kind of people you see strewn across every page of Acts. Demon-possessed slave girls, violent jailers, oppressed eunuchs, 
and even persecutors of the church like Paul. Sinful, broken people, exactly like the one sitting here in this room. People like you and people like me. What is that thing that sets our hearts free to proclaim that Jesus fully? It's the sight of his glory, the sight of his face. That thing of such beauty, it melts our hearts and takes what once we feared and turns it into our delight so that the joy of our hearts becomes the anthem of our tongues, even as it did for Paul. Thomas Brooks, an old Puritan, he once prayed this, sickness may take my health and strength, death may take my friends and my relations, enemies may take my estate and my liberty, but none can take you, my God, from me. You are nailed to your people by your everlasting love, by your everlasting covenant, by the blood of your son. That's the God of Acts. That's the God who is offered to us now in Christ. And at the sight of such a God, of such overwhelming beauty, how can we not be captured body and soul? as those who have been brought into that story by the sovereign grace of one who by his son and through his spirit has nailed himself to us. May we join in that story, not begrudgingly or fearfully, not as though it is some duty to be dreaded, but with joy, because we have seen the one who is our heart's delight. Would you do that now? In Jesus' name. Father, we ask, would you work in us? Would you take this gospel and would you burn it into our very hearts and souls and turn us into those, Lord, who would join in that mission and proclaim the name of Jesus, the Savior of sinners, even sinners like us. Do this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we go, I invite you to turn your attention to the screen. We have a short video that walks over some of the themes that we've covered in Acts. The book of Acts is a testament to the birth of the church. Can you imagine the scene as the disciples heard their resurrected Lord say the words, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Then, ten days later, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit of God himself descended upon them and filled them with power and courage. They didn't know the roads they were about to tread, the challenges and opposition ahead but they were undeterred, compelled by a resurrected Savior and His Spirit within them. Through their unwavering obedience and conviction, thousands heard the good news and believed. Yet with great fervor came great persecution. They were imprisoned, facing the threat of death itself. But in their resolve, they rejoiced. They counted themselves blessed to suffer for the name of Jesus. In their darkest hours, they found solace in the power of prayer, lifting their voices in praise, knowing that God's purpose would prevail. From Antioch to Jerusalem, from Ephesus to Rome, the church grew and spread like wildfire. Through every generation of human history, the tortures passed, and the gospel story blazed through the centuries. The good news could not be stopped. Not by famine, not by persecution, not by plague, not by borders, not by palaces and kings, not by time, 
Not by distance, not even death itself could stand against the body of Jesus Christ, his church. And now, the grand story of redemption continues in and through us. We are called to carry the gospel flame, to share the salvation found in Jesus with people from every nation near and far. God's kingdom knows no limits. With resolute faith, we forge ahead, empowered by the same spirit that emboldened those first apostles in our neighborhoods, in our cities, and to the farthest reaches of the world. May our own lives echo the life-transforming power of the gospel. May we be devoted to the teaching of God's word and to fellowship with God's people, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. May we be filled with awe at the transforming work of God today. May we live in unity, sharing freely with one another in need. May we continually meet each other in our homes and in our sanctuaries with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. The story of Acts lives on, in us. With every breath, with every step, we advance. May we continue to proclaim the kingdom of God and teach about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance, because our God is with us. Until he returns, let us trust him to do what only he can do as he continues his radical and renewing work in us and through us, even to the ends of the earth. Well, amen. You are the living, breathing chapter 29 of Acts. As God continues to build his church, uh, we get to be a part of that until he comes again. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.